This is Boss Ladies. Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies. I really appreciate it, and I'm super excited to chat with you today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and and your career journey? You know, you're an executive, an entrepreneur, a public company board member, and you've spent 20 years in digital media, consumer internet, and technology with experience building new businesses and negotiating over $7 billion in deal transactions. So very, very exciting and very much a Boss Lady. Well, thanks, Olivia. I think feel like that uh, introduction really uh, teed me up pretty high, so I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, happy to be part of Boss Ladies. I uh, love working with women, and uh, I'm always happy to help develop the next generation of women. So it's great to be here, and I love this podcast. Thank you. You know, as you back- mentioned, my background's in digital media. I grew up in the Bay Area and was surrounded by all the technology that was coming out as I was growing up and just became really interested and a little obsessed with how technology changes how we interact with each other, how we consume information, how we consume entertainment. And I followed that passion uh, through my career. I was um, started after college working for several internet startups and learned all the basics of search marketing and email marketing back in the day when those things were all new. And I followed that passion through to business school, got some great training at McKinsey. And then at NBC Universal, I was part of the digital media team that helped to form and launch the Hulu joint venture with News Corporation, which was amazing. And most recently, I uh, was a CEO of Quant, uh, which was a leader in the VR and AR technology, and I led that company to be sold to Verizon. Uh, but that passion for the way technology changes our world is really what's been my driving factor. That's amazing. And you're on a board. So what is that like? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I've been on the board of Harmonic for about eight years now. They're one of the leading technology providers that enables live television. They provide the hardware and software to do that, as well as technology that allows for faster transmission of data across cable access lines. And sitting on a board's been an amazing experience. I think when you're an executive or working in a company, uh, it can sometimes be hard to understand how decisions get made or how to think about the company from a board perspective. And being on the board has really made me a better executive. A couple of things that I've learned. One, just how important people and organization are and that you really want to cultivate a culture that's working towards the company's mission and goals. Two is a long-term perspective of where the company needs to go and how they're going to compete in the market. And finally, in terms of making decisions, realizing that you really want to think through all the different options out there. I used to find as I was executive, when I would present things to my bosses or to boards that I'd work with, that I'd sort of feel like, why are you asking me about all the different options? Like, don't you think that I've come up with the right plan? But actually, thinking through the options is what helps you understand what, what's happening in the market and what the trade-offs are in the decision that you're making. And I now take that perspective with me um, to my you know day job, and I try to think through what are other ways that we can do this? How are others in the market going to react? What's the best position for our company long term? And that perspective has been really helpful to me. That's awesome. And it's very cool that it sounds like you've you've learned a lot in, in your experience and in, in being on that board. And I think it's awesome to see that more women, there's more momentum to getting more women on boards, right? It seems like there's a big push for that. There's now some requirements around that. Um, so it's exciting to see. I think more perspectives are going to lead to you know better products and better companies. 
Yeah, I mean, the research is pretty clear that diverse boards, both in gender and ethnicity, drive uh, better outcomes for companies. So at the end of the day, it's good business. It's unfortunate that there's still so much challenge in getting women and women of color onto boards. Um, I think it's very helpful to have the targets because it forces companies to make the changes. But it's sad that we have to have those. I think that the data speaks for itself and that it's better for business. So I'm glad to see the change continuing to come and I hope it continues. Yeah, absolutely. And it's awesome that you're sort of one of the pioneer women, you know, on a board and, and contributing and showing why women should more women should be on boards. So I want to talk a little bit about these deal negotiations. You know, you've negotiated over $7 billion in deals, which I think is safe to say makes you an expert when it comes to deal negotiations. So before you go into a negotiation, like what are you thinking about and, and how do you strategize? I mean, the first thing I think to think about a negotiation is just really thinking towards a long-term vision. What are you going for? What, why does this deal make sense? And a deal could be a acquisition. It could be a merger. It could be a sale. It could be a partnership. It could be anything. And in fact, I think everything's a negotiation. Everything's a deal. So it could even just be negotiating your salary, which we should get into more later. But um, when you're thinking about it from a business to business perspective, it's really thinking about the big vision. What, what are you trying to get done? Why does it make sense to do this, both for your company and for the party across the table? And when you can really articulate clearly from both sides, that's when you're going to be in a good position to bring the right parties to the table and make a deal happen. So once you've set that all up, you're going into the deal. What does that look like? Well, um, you know, typically you've probably had multiple discussions with the other party and you've brought them into the big vision. You know, I'm thinking a little bit about the line we've gotten to where you're starting to talk about terms and you're starting to talk about how is this actually going to work and the back and forth. A couple of things I've learned along the way. One is it doesn't have to be tense. You know, you can set the tone and some of the best negotiators I've seen out there are those who are just sort of matter of fact and friendly, but yet also firm. It doesn't have to be a tense situation. And, it, you know, it might get that way, but it doesn't always have to be that way, even when it's difficult topics. Um, the second thing I would say is that uh, it's really important to listen. Uh, when somebody says something that either you don't understand or it seems off topic to what you're talking about, just sort of lean back and be like, tell me more about that. Uh, and just ask probing questions, because the more that you understand how they're thinking about the deal and where they think the challenges are and the value is, the more you're going to be able to put those puzzle pieces together. And along those lines, I think it's you want to help the other person also think through their talking points. What are the challenges they're facing and how do you help them get over the hump internally with their bosses or their or their management team? And finally, I think it's you've got to hold firm and be tenacious. When I was working on the Hulu joint venture, I was personally in the room several times when our management team killed the deal and said that we're not going to do this, we're going to do other stuff. And uh, the team we were working with just sort of took the feedback on board and came back and said, okay, we know we're not thinking about doing this, but we've adapted. Here's what we think might work. And you really want to be tenacious about trying to get it done if you think it's the right idea. I always think of the Princess Bride scene where they're storming the castle and the head of the military is going, stand your ground, stand your ground. So think of that when you're doing the deal. Stand your ground. And even just keeping the show up and be tenacious makes a big difference. I love that. And do you go into these deals like with an expected outcome in mind? Like, is there a winner? Is there a loser? Or can both parties win? Should both parties win? How do you approach that? 
You should always go into any deal or negotiation with a clear sense of what you want out of it. 100%. You've got to know what you want, what's most important to you, what's not as important to you, and what you're willing to give on. Uh, they used to say, you know, a good deal is when both parties walk away unhappy. I would say a good deal is when both parties walk away happy and unhappy, right? You want both parties to get <laughs> what they want, but also not everything that they wanted. And if you're both, you know, 51% happy, then that's probably a deal is done on the right side. You know, the, you're, the people that you're working with and doing deals with are people you're going to see again uh, in your career. And so you should always try to get a good deal, but it also doesn't serve you to um, do a deal that's really not in anyone's best interest because it'll follow you around. <laughs> yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And this may be a silly question, but like, why do people not get what they want, right? Like if you've done your homework, if you have done the research, you have your plan and you strategize and you should win this deal, like why, what are some of the nuances as to why someone might not be able to get what they want out of a deal? Uh, it may be that the other party values what you're trying to ask them for and they don't want to give it to you and they're unwilling to and you're unwilling to sort of make a value exchange that works. Maybe they value too high, maybe they value too low, who knows? Second, it could be also that you're not as focused on it as you should be, or you've got other pieces and you're willing to give that or trade it for something else. That's where it's really important to go into any deal with a strategy and know where you're willing to give and where you're willing to not. But sometimes you don't know why a deal doesn't happen. And you sort of just have to say, all right, after you've been as tenacious as possible, walk away and be like, all right, I don't understand why that didn't work, but um, yeah, exactly. we're moving on. And I feel like I'm someone who is like super emotional and feedback I've gotten, and I think I've gotten a lot better at it, but from my management is to try and be less emotional, especially in some you know tense conversations that happen at work. How do you balance and keep your emotions in check throughout a deal negotiation? Because I feel like there's so many ups and downs and different nuances and conversations that happen. How do you keep everything in check? Well, let me ask the question back. Like, <laughs> what does too emotional mean? Are you getting upset and crying? Are you laughing? Are you um, tensing up? Like, what is what happens? I would say for me, tensing up. I definitely like my emotions. I'm not very good at hiding them. So if I'm frustrated, it's apparent. Thankfully, no crying or tears. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> But more, it's just that I get very like visibly frustrated. Yeah, that's tough. Um, and I think all of us have had to deal with a lot of different emotions at any point in time. Personally, I find for the tense, I just try to take deep breaths and try to find some humor, right? The humor and being friendly and affable is such a powerful weapon. And I learned that over the years, just seeing a lot of very effective negotiators use that and just sort of laugh it off and be like, oh, that's crazy. You're asking for that. Like, who, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, just, you know, making it a lot less personal. In general, I would say the reason I think we all get emotional, because I get emotional too, is that we tie our worth to the outcome of what's happening. And so it's very hard when it starts not going the way that you expect because you think I'm going to prove my worth when I do this deal or this partnership or whatever it is. I get approval for this project. I think what I've learned is that, yes, the outcomes are definitely important, but also what makes you really effective is how you handle and manage the adversities and the challenges that come your way. So if you start to say, 
I'm valued for what I my outcome is, but also how I handle this and how I manage these bumps in the road, then it makes you able to be a little cooler and I think have a little bit more distance from the turmoil that might be going on inside. I like that approach. I definitely will try it and report back. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know. Let me know how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely will. So when you're negotiating these deals, like what's the room typically look like? Do you find that most of these have happened in diverse rooms or are you typically one of the fewer women in the room? And and how, what has that been like for you? Uh, No, I, I, they're not diverse rooms. I mean, unfortunately, this is the reality of our business world that we're all working very hard to change. A lot of us are working and I hope to see that change. So it typically is definitely more white males. Um, I have had the great fortune of working with a lot of great women and a lot of great people of color and women of color. And that has been fantastic. I think the lack of diversity can be a problem because it can make you feel left out and like an outsider. So I think you really have to get a sense of confidence that you deserve a seat at that table and you deserve to be there. And there's a reason that you're in the room. And also make sure that you're adding value and that you're, there is a reason that you're in the room. Not to overly say that how you perform is a metric, but I think every meeting you have, I used to counsel this to my junior people that I have on my team, is like every meeting, like you need to be saying something. You know, even if you're in a meeting with 10 senior executives and it's not really your meeting, you're more sitting there listening and learning, that's great, but you should be adding at least something one time. Um, And I think having that is really important to help build your confidence. Absolutely. And how does your strategy and your advice change when you shift to more personal negotiations, like advocating for a promotion or for a raise? Yeah, it's a tough thing, right? Because this is when it really is coming down to your, it's not your value, but it is what you're paid. And so it's a very hard thing. And it's very hard not to be emotional about it. The first thing I would say is that companies are used to getting these requests. Maybe you're asking once a year, but they're getting it every other day from a different employee. So know that this is a sort of normal course of business for them and go in with that knowledge, even though it's hard. I would say it's also important when you do it to pick the right time. Think about what's going on in your company and when it might be the right time to ask for a raise. Is it before a new project kicks off that you're going to have a lot of responsibility? Are you, is it, you look to do it at the year end when you see the results? Is it after a big client win or deliverable um, or a big product launch? Pick your time of when you want to do it. Do your research and know your value. This is about going in with the broader strategy that we talked about on any deal. Go out, get your market comps, understand the compensation, and then keep it simple. I would recommend you sort of have three talking points and you keep it to that. You say, look, I've benchmarked this role. I've been here for several years. This is the market compensation. These are the great things I'm doing in the roles. And these are the social responsibilities I've been taking on. And I would like a raise. I would like to be paid this amount. And even when the questions come back at you that maybe don't speak to those three points, almost just repeat those three points. Just like, well, it's not market. I think this is market. And I've been really delivering for the company. You don't have to engage in every point and counterpoint. Just sort of stand your ground and be there and show up with, um, with the information. And finally, you know, if they come back and they say, no, we can't do that. You got to have your backup offer. Do you ask for a bonus? Do you ask for a different title? Do you ask for a review and say, okay, if it's really the case, then can we look at a review for me in six months instead of in a year? 
always be ready to look at the next source of value that you can get. And don't hesitate to ask them to step up with something, even if you can't necessarily get the salary that you might be looking for. Let's say you get a nose across the board. How soon can you revisit that conversation? Like what's the optimal time period you need to wait or prove yourself or do something else to then go back? Well, I would ask them that. Oh, I got a nose across the board. Like when can we revisit this conversation? Because my market data says this is I'm not being paid at market rates. And you're saying there's not an opportunity to address any of my concerns. So when can we revisit this conversation? And if they're saying a year plus, then that's sending you a message. If there's you know real business reasons about it, and then you know negotiate for a shorter time period. If you're a good employee, your company wants to keep you. So I think it's unlikely you probably get all no's. At the very least, saying can we revisit this in three or six months is something that most people can agree to because it gives you a chance to address whatever feedback they might have, but also sort of lets them know you're evaluating them too. Yeah, absolutely. And at what point do you feel like maybe it is best to just look for another job? Well, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. So compensation is definitely an important part of it. But there's other things that are important. You know, what's the scope of the role that you're in? Is this a job that you and a role that you've done for five years and you could just go get the same job somewhere else? Or are you expanding your skill set? And it's really valuable. And you think like, yeah, I maybe I'm paid under market, but I'm learning this skill that I've never had and it's going to help me get my next thing. I think those are important considerations. How much do you like the company that you work for? How much do you like the people that you work for? All of those things go into factors, both about your day-to-day happiness and also your long-term career potential and path and where you're going. But at the end of the day, it's a business decision and those factors should go in. You know, I wouldn't say you should factor on loyalty. You should be factoring on, is this a place that is giving me marketable skills and that I enjoy working? And is the conversation not far enough off that like, I can stay? Yeah. Well, I hope that listeners who are, you know, in those conversations or preparing for those conversations, I hope that they can learn a thing or two from this because I think that was super great advice across the board. I have a question for you that I've actually been thinking about a lot recently, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on. So I've talked a bunch on the show about imposter syndrome. I think it's safe to say that most people experience it at one point or another. But there's this weird conflict where you're advocating for yourself, right? You're negotiating on your own behalf, but then sometimes you reflect and you don't necessarily believe it Like when reflecting on yourself, right? Like it's so interesting to go into a room and be like, I deserve to be here. I deserve a seat at the table. And then sometimes you go home and you're like, "Ah, but I'm not good at this. Why am I there? How do you sort of rationalize those two conflicts almost? I think it's hard. The imposter syndrome is just sort of a way that haunts you and makes you feel always that you're maybe not good enough. And it's really helpful for your mental health to crack it. I think accepting that nobody is perfect and recognizing what you are good at. Really, you know, taking a chance to say, am I feeling self-doubt here because I really didn't do a good job? Or am I feeling self-doubt because I'm just scared and feel uncomfortable? And taking the time to think about the difference between the two. And then second, I think is what I'm starting to say, which is um, knowing what you're really good at. What is the thing that you're going to be known for? And there's probably two or three things and emphasizing and focusing on that. 
that way you're sort of realizing where your value is and there's other things that maybe you need to work on and you're not as skilled at and you're sort of like, yeah, I'm developing those areas. But I know when it comes to this topic or this topic, I can really add value here. I think that's that's really good advice. So I want to jump topics here for a second. You're a co-founder and advisor of FEM, which for those who don't know, stands for Female Executives in Media and Entertainment. It's a nonprofit helping female executives broaden their network of professional connections. Um, And in addition to this, obviously, you're on this podcast, you're incredibly passionate about women supporting women. Can you tell us a little bit more about both being one of the co-founders and advisors at FEM and also what that's like and any strategies you use to, to support women? Sure. So um, the idea for FEM came about with several women that I work with. I had noticed personally that when I was working on deals or working in business, that the people around me had a really broad informal network of connections. And when we would talk about, oh, let's try to do a partnership with this company, the people I work with would say, oh, I know so-and-so over there. I'm going to give them a call and like see what they think and get their pulse and find out what's really going on. And I just thought, you know, I don't, I don't really have that informal network. And I was talking to other women that I knew in the field felt the same way. And actually, there's a fair amount of research around it that shows that women are not as good at building informal networks. They tend to go more narrow and deep, but don't have a lot of different connections in different places. And so we decided to set up FEM as a way to help executives meet one another um, in the media and entertainment space with the idea that these informal networks can really help women. And it's been an amazing organization. We're largely centered in Los Angeles. And coming out of FEM, we've had so many women helping women on salary negotiations or career advice or helping to find job opportunities or working on deals together. And it really has been an opportunity where we help build each other up. And we do that through events and informal networking. Obviously, the events these days are all over Zoom, but we used to be in person. Um, and informal networking. And I really encourage all women and everyone in business to build those informal networks. Think about how do you connect with somebody? It's hard in this day and age, but can you set up a quick 15-minute Zoom meeting with someone even in a different department within your company, right? If you're in marketing or product, like take 15 minutes to talk to someone in finance, like, you know, someone you wouldn't normally talk to because it will always give you a different perspective on how things work and what's happening at the company and can potentially open up new opportunities. Um, I've seen it happen for other people. Can you share one of the success stories that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, one was a, a woman friend of mine who worked in recruiting and wanted to get into HR uh, within her same company. And she said, you know, I, I just don't know how to make that leap. Like, I, you know, I don't even feel like they would necessarily consider me. And so I said to her, you know, um, she worked at one of the big tech companies where there was free lunch every day. This was a couple of years ago. And so I said, well, why don't you just start asking people if they want to meet for coffee or lunch every day? And she was like, okay. And she literally did it for like a couple of months. She would just like rotate sort of the group of people on this whole network. And I think it took less than six months. An HR role came open. She heard about through her networking and she applied and she got it and she was able to transfer internally. And she now has a really successful HR career. And it was really exciting to see um, because just by having a broader perspective beyond your day and today really made them recognize her and see what she could add value to and also made her more knowledgeable when she went to those interviews to set her up for success. 
That's awesome. I love that story. That's that's really great. And and always awesome to hear. And I think also in the virtual world, you know, like you said, like reach out to people for coffee. People are looking to make connections and looking to have these conversations and get to know more people and expand their networks as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, it can there definitely is Zoom fatigue. So you know, be creative about it. Say like, can we do 15 minutes? You know, do you want to do a virtual walk around the block, right? Like if you can uh, manage it with masks and all of that. Um, in some places where it's opening up more, can you meet outside? I think uh, it'll, it pays off. It, it really does. Absolutely. And to end this interview on a super high positive note, as I always like to, can you share what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments? Definitely my greatest accomplishment was having twins. I have now twin 11-year-old girls. Becoming a parent has really changed my perspective on the world. It's made me much more compassionate, much more patient. I mean, it's really, really challenging when you have toddler twins. (laughs) And I think those skills have served me well. It also makes me understand the human psyche a little bit better. I sort of laugh sometimes when you see an executive acting out and I think, oh, I, I remember my toddler did this. Yes, I know. I know how I respond to this. <laughs> to, to, the, to the earlier conversation, I'm not getting emotional. You're like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but we're still going to do it. <laughs> so um, I think definitely, uh, you know, having a family and, and children like that has been a really amazing personal growth development and something I really enjoy. And uh, it's fun to help breed and build up the next um, generation of women leaders, hopefully. Yeah, the future boss ladies. <laughs> hopefully, yes. I don't know if you're booking into 2035. Maybe by then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to talk to their people and try and get on their calendar. Well, thank you exactly. so much for taking the time to be on the show. This was so amazing. And we covered so many awesome topics. So I'm, I'm really excited that I got to speak with you today. Thanks. Same to you, Olivia. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Boss Ladies. Check back next week for a new episode. Visit us at www.bossladiespodcast.com for more information about the show or follow us at Boss Ladies Podcast on Instagram. Rate, like, and follow the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Mm-hmm.